Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And, um, boy, what a rich week it was. It was, a, for me, personally, a tough week starting out. I, God really humbled me. I, you know, I've gone up to 10,000 feet before. I had no ill effects, and so I didn't take any of the medicine for altitude sickness. And I discovered, to my great regret, that those extra 2,000 feet make a really big difference. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I was really struggling, and I was struggling to kind of engage and be present but over the course of the week, God did some really remarkable things among our team. So many gifts that I brought back with me. Um, one of the great gifts God granted was time to hang out with my compassion child. And his, his name is Franz. He's a cute little guy. If I had slides, I'd show you a picture of him. And he, he kept calling me Padrino because I'm his sponsor. And I, I asked what it meant. It meant Godfather. I kind of like that, you know. He's just, just like calling me Godfather. And... I got to, you know, as a group, we got to take the kids to the zoo. And, boy, just seeing the kid in whose life you're making a difference, visiting his family, seeing his mom, and realizing that even though he didn't come from my body, my genes, that we're in it together, blessing this kid and giving him a chance at the future. And I just felt immediately knit together with, with his family. So that was one of the great gifts I, I brought home with me. But I think overall, if I could define one thread that was woven throughout everything we experienced in Bolivia this past week, I think it would be the incredible power of the unity of the church. Um, One of the things I really came back with is just sensing how when Christ is the center among people, it makes an incredible difference in the way it feels to be together with those people. There is a kinship or a, um, a fellowship we feel that I have never experienced outside the church in any other setting. Now, you know, I've been to Bears games at Soldier Field where everyone's wearing orange and blue and we're shouting for our team to win. That feels pretty good. Anybody ever been to a, a Bears game? It feels pretty good to actually be there, doesn't it? But there's, it's a very shallow, I mean, you could just as soon, after a couple too many beers, be punching that guy next to you in the face as cheering with him for your city, for your team. But when Christians get together and Christ is at the center, something remarkable happens. I remember, for example, there was this guy named uh, Miguel who I was out of town when he came to visit Harvest. He's a compassion ambassador now living in Bolivia. And people kept saying, we're carrying all these bags over for him. We're going to meet him. And he's somebody I'd never met. You know how that feeling when you're the only one in a group who's never met somebody and you're like, I can't get that excited about meeting a guy that everyone else knows. But the minute I met him, I felt a great kinship with him, a deep, moving love for him that I couldn't explain by any human means. I just really was drawn to him. And I realized what it is, is that when Christians live together in unity, something very, very good happens. So many people we met in Bolivia, so many experiences we had, impressed that on me. But probably the most impactful for me was meeting Pastor Gabriel. Pastor Gabriel is the lead pastor of the church that we partner with in Bolivia, Bethesda Church. He looks kind of like the most interesting man on earth in those Dos Equis commercials. Um, Really cool-looking guy, but so humble, so soft-spoken. And I, I guess I could say almost the summary of his heart's conviction is the unity of the church. He's invested so much of his life in trying to bring together the churches in his city under one banner of Jesus Christ. And on Monday morning, we got to sit under his teaching as he led us through a devotion from this psalm. And so in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm going to tell you, I've pretty much stolen his sermon, and I've adapted it for our context because it it was probably for me the highlight of the week in Bolivia was sitting and listening to this man share what I think from Scripture lays the foundation for how he sees the church. Now, when I say stolen, I don't mean just stolen. The first time I heard it was in Spanish. So I've had to do a little bit of adjusting and adding my own special sauce to this. But it it just was something I felt like was, you know, you know, God's working when you're listening to a sermon because you're hearing a man talk, but the spirit is saying all kinds of other stuff to you. Like thoughts are firing off a thousand words a minute in your brain and, and you're being moved beyond what you can explain by just what the guy's saying. So it was an okay message, but God was, 
keeps whacking me over the head the whole time Pastor Cruz is speaking. And just something really impactful happened for me. So I want to share some of those convictions from this particular passage with you. And the first thing that I think we see here in this text comes from verse 1. If we could flash that up again. And it is that our unity invites God's delight. Okay? Our unity invites God's delight. Um, this is a psalm of King David. And what David says is how good and pleasant. I mean, those are good words, aren't they? He's, he, he said, it, when people get together in Christian unity under God, it is good and pleasant. I don't think David was just saying it's good and pleasant for us, but I really think what he was saying is it's good and pleasant to God as well. I wonder if we really fully grasp how important our unity is to God the Father. Now, I know not everyone in this room is a parent, but parents, would you just raise your hand if, you, if, you have, if you're a parent? Now, raise your, keep your hand raised if you have more than one kid. That changes everything. So when you have one kid, all you see is innocence and you know, soft. When you have two kids, you see how evil human nature is. As soon as you have a second kid, all of a sudden, there's a new dynamic in your house. You see the sinful nature of man on display in a three-year-old or a four-year-old. You just see how hard it is. And every parent with more than one kid has said these words. Why is it so hard for you to be nice to your sibling? Why can't you just get along? Why can't you be kind to your sister or to your brother? Why would you do something like that? You, you put all the variations together. Those of you who only have one kid, oh, a, a day of joy is coming for you. When, when the second one's added, it changes everything. And you realize how different the home feels, how your parent heart changes when your children are being loving to each other and when they are not. It doesn't matter what kind of mood you're in. When you see your children being evil to one another, it sours everything. But when you see, and you just by surprise, usually it's when they don't realize you're looking, you catch this, uh, this sort of unseen act of kindness and love, something really profound happens in your heart, doesn't it? Especially when you didn't coach him, when you're like, share with your sister, give half to... But when you just see him do it, it the blessing, the delight in your heart... It's hard to describe. And I think that's the way God feels when he looks at us. In fact, I think there's enough evidence in Scripture to argue this. That when God looks down at his church, I think the first thing he sees is how we feel about him. That's what worship is about, right? I mean, he's, he's wondering, how do they feel about me? But the very next second, the next instant, almost inseparable, is he's looking at how we feel then in light of that about one another. In other words, I don't think God is fooled by a heart that says, God, I love you, I just hate all these other people. I think what God is looking for, because Jesus, when he was invited, gave two commandments, the second uninvited, right? He said, love God, so make sure that's there. But then immediately afterwards, make sure then because of that, you really love one another. Because when God looks at his family... That's one of the things that matters the most to him. In fact, I think you could say that one of the things that makes God the happiest is when his children live together in unity. It's not just a value-added accessory. In other words, if you thought your point in being a part of this church is to worship God, get to know God, um, serve God, give offering to God, and you've defined all of this harvest experience as vertical with God, you're halfway there. Well, maybe three-quarters of the way there. You got the biggest thing right. But if you haven't experienced and enjoyed a deep heart fellowship with the other people in this church, then there's something profound that you're missing in the experience of being a Christian. If you've kept people at arm's length, not rude, not arrogant, but just, you know, I'm really busy, I've got time to worship God, but I don't have a lot of space to let all of you into my life. If that's how you felt and that's how you've managed the relationship and the experience at Harvest, that I want to tell you that you're missing something profoundly delightful, good and pleasant that happens when we realize what God wanted for us when he invented the idea of the church. You notice that um, if God had wanted us to worship all by ourselves, he would have invented the internet 2,000 years ago. So we could sit in our underwear online and just watch the service. 
We could use PayPal to give our offering. We would never need to see or smell or hear one another again. But I think God's plan for us is that part of the richness and the joy of being a Christian is discovering how good it feels when we really get along. We've had, since moving to our new house, we've had some wonderful, rich evenings sitting at our dining table just talking with some of you guys. And those days have been some of the greatest I can remember, Harvest. Just having long conversations about nothing at all and then about something really profound and important. And those days remind me how much I really love this church. You know, tomorrow um, I'm going to turn 45. That kind of an occasion makes a person reflective because if I live to be 90, I'm sitting right on top of that hill and then starting Monday or Tuesday, I, I start going over it. <laughs> um, in other words, I'm entering that stage where I have more past than future, right? And as I think about that, I realize looking back, some of the richest moments have been here with you guys. I look backwards and I see a lot of churches in my rearview mirror, but when I look forward, I honestly see only one church for me. And I still pray every morning when I wake up, God, let me die with these people. I, I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't. And that has created such a force field around my heart. Every offer that comes in, bam, stiff arm. Because I, I can tell you, I've experienced so many times how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. There is nothing quite like the experience of the church united. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's what God delights in. And so when we come together as a church, one of the things we have to be mindful of is this is a family and it has a father. And if we focus on what makes the father happy, in effect, we will also experience great happiness. Right? If we, if we remember that the reason we come together as church is not just to be happy ourselves, but to please the heart of God, our Father, to give Him delight, the result will be that it will be good and pleasant for us as well. Now, it's believed that the Israelites, when they made their pilgrimages to Jerusalem each year for the great festivals and feasts, they would sing this song as they were entering the city. Some scholars disagree, but I, I think that's probably a very probable way in which this psalm was used as a praise song. And that got me to thinking... You know, each week the praise team sends me an email. Um, you know, PD, you're preaching. Uh, we saw the title in the text. What songs do you have in mind? And I realized for this whole series on true community, we've got almost no Christian songs that talk about our love for each other. Every one of our songs is vertical. Can you think of one song that isn't written 1970 or earlier that has to do with our love for one another? We are the Lord's own family. You know, friends are friends. For, all stuff from the 80s. Latest, right? I, I'm trying to go through the song, but is there anything about how we love one another? The Israelites used this song to express their heart of joy as they entered after, you know, listen, pilgrimage wasn't by, by American Airlines or Greyhound bus in those days. You hoofed it, literally, either on the hoofs of a donkey or, or you walked on your own hooves. And you, you made it through the desert. Usually the, the great festivals were in the summer when it was dry as a bone in Jerusalem. So you're carrying what water you can. And it's not cold. It's hot water. Have you ever drank tepid hot water when you're really thirsty? It's muy malo, okay? Um, and it was, it's, that, that's the experience. So they're at the end of a long journey. They see the walls of Jerusalem. And then off to the distance, they see all the other faithful people, God's children, called in obedience to this place at this time, coming from far-flung places. And they began to feel the strength of it. Just like when you're pulling up to our retreat and you realize all these other people have already come to campus and there's a strength that rises in your heart as you realize we are the church. That's my brother and my sister over there. I see a familiar face. And you begin to feel that surge of happiness as you see all the other people who are there for the same reason you are and we're bound together by something profound. It feels right. And there was such a joy. And then they used the Psalm of David to sing as they entered into the city how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. The picture is very compelling for me. It expresses the joy you feel. And some of you are having a hard time hearing this because you're in the exact opposite place. You're feeling the very opposite of the joy of being together because you're feeling kind of alone. In a way, even though you are in pain, your experience right now validates my argument. That the greatest joy we feel in the church sometimes is delivered to us through one another. 
And that's why when that's missing, the emptiness is so profound and so painful. Very few people have left this church because of the preaching or the music or the food. When I have exit interviews with people who leave the church, do you know what's the main reason they leave? Broken relationships. A fight. Feeling alone, abandoned by one another. Very few people leave because they're mad at me. Because I'm awesome. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. A kid. I'm joking. Okay, But... But they leave because what they really long for is not just a vertical relationship, but a horizontal one and with somebody who's not paid to give it. <laughs> yeah, you're really nice to me, Pastor Dave, but that doesn't count because you're like supposed to. What I really wanted was these non-paid volunteers to love me, and I just can't seem to get that from them. And that's why people leave, because when it's there, it feels so good. And when it's not there, it feels really, really wrong and bad to be in the church. And so David reminds us there is something powerful. And when God delights, we also delight with him. And I'm going to just challenge you right now. If you haven't experienced that, you've got to. Because that's what's going to make you interested in church again. One of the reasons there was so much joy in entering Jerusalem and seeing one another was because the 12 tribes of Israel came from far-flung places and there was more that could have divided them than joined them. That unity they felt could so easily have been shattered by anything because they were crossing tribal lines to remember we're not just 12 separate tribes, we are one nation with one forefather, Jacob. And it was at these festivals of pilgrimage as they're coming in from all over the place that they reaffirmed that. Let me ask you a question. In, in, at Harvest, um, we're actually allowed to talk back and forth. Okay? And so I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to actually shout out some answers. What are some of the tribal lines that exist in our church that we have to get past in order to really walk in unity with each other? What are some of the natural tribal lines that might divide us? Anybody? CGs. Okay, so there you go. CGs, our community groups, though they're meant to bind us together, can also become a tribe out of which you may have very little interest beyond that group. What's another tribal line? Say louder. Age. Age or generation as one. Yes. Life stages. Yes. So that could be marital status. It could be parenthood. It could be where you are in your career. What are some other tribal lines? Yes, minivan owners and the cool people. People still with some dignity left. Right? <laughs> Any other? How about ethnicity? I, I find that in our church, there's a far greater openness than I've experienced in many places to a diversity ethnically. And yet you know that still in all of our hearts, there is this natural affinity to our own kind that is hard to suppress. Even though we accept and love one another, there seems to be built into the human nature an affinity for the sameness. And you can see that on your iPhone as you scroll down the context is how many names reflect you and your people group. There are lots of ways we could be divided. I mean, so many ways. Some people are born and raised in the Midwest. Some people are displaced here from cooler places like California or New York or Australia, you know, really upside-down places like that. Um, and you find that you're here, but this is not your first home. Others here are divided by heart language. You can speak English, but your heart language, the, the language of your, your spirit is a different language. And so everything that happens here, you're processing through a secondary filter, a translator. Do you realize in this room... There is so much that could potentially divide us. And the truth is, in some ways, it already is dividing us in that in most young adult churches, there is a rift developing between the singles and the marrieds, for example. And then even among the married people, there's a rift developing between those who have kids and those who don't and are not interested in having kids. And there's this kind of like, you know, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> what's wrong with you? And you, you realize we can categorize ourselves so that over a while... Even Sox versus Cubs fans in the same city. It's ludicrous to me how strongly we feel about sports in America. 
There's so much that could potentially divide us. That's why when division doesn't happen, but unity happens, everyone knows something special is going on. Because the default human nature is to cling to my own tribe, and I'm not going to cross over to yours. But when it actually is achieved, it's good. For the Israelites, what bound them together, the center, the rally point, was a city, Jerusalem. And as they came to this city that had such ancient memories, such profound significance for them, the sight of the city walls was like the face of your mother. Just a comforting, familiar sight, and you just clung to it, you were drawn to it. We don't have a city in the New Testament era. But our center, our rally point, is Jesus himself, who made irrelevant the idea of one city to bind us, but he said, everywhere you are, I will be with you. He would be the center that would rally us, so that as we're drawn to Jesus, we're now able to overcome the differences that would divide us. I can overlook the fact that you're so different in your life stage, in your heritage, your sense of humor, than I am. Pofo and I have a very different sense of humor, but I love the guy. In fact, I've been told now I've been affected by him, and... Uh, in his absence, I tell the interesting jokes. Interesting is a euphemism for corny, Frank. Do you realize that when that happens, something good happens in our hearts? Because we realize what a miracle it is. That, that that couldn't happen without a potent center that draws us in. If we try to build our unity on the basis of anything else, socioeconomic similarities, ethnicity, generation, those things will be short-lived because eventually we will annoy one another. But if the reason of God brings the word, something happens because God delights to anoint those people who are united. In a fractured church, you can have them in unity. And so one of the best ways to safeguard the unity of our church is to make sure that you, you are being drawn here, not only for one another, but because you have this desperate draw towards Jesus Christ. And as that happens, I think God will draw us together. So that's the bulk of the message, is what, what unity looks like, how good it is in the heart of God, how good it is for us. But then David goes on to just give us a couple very practical or tangible benefits when the, when the people of God live together in unity. In verse 2, he makes this very, um, it actually sounds messy and sticky to me, but it's a very powerful illustration. He says, see, when we're approaching the city and we see all of our old tribesmates and people from other tribes we met last, at last year's festival, and we're like, hey, Joe, it's good to see you again. I, was, I saw you last year at the Festival of Shelters. How are you doing? How's the goat? You know, and you're, you're saying all this stuff and you're, you're, this fondness comes up. And as it's happening, what David says is, you know what that's like? It's like, the precious, it's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. In our modern day, I don't know if that's a very compelling illustration, picturing oil just poured on your head and then getting all up in your beard and down on your clothes. That just sounds like a dry cleaning bill to me, right? But here's what it meant. And here's why if he just talked about oil on the head, it would, it would seem kind of weird but he mentions Aaron's beard. And here's why that's significant. Aaron was the first priest. He was the father of all priests in Israel. In fact, spiritually, we are descended from priests, from, from Aaron, when God says that we are all a kingdom of priests. Each of us has that mediating role between God and man. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And when a priest did his job, he was no longer just a man going through religious motions. Something profound happened when a priest did his job. And so because he was going to do something that had great spiritual significance, he had to be commissioned into that. You don't just stand up and go, I think I'll do that, and then just start doing stuff. What, there, there's a process by which you have to be legitimized so that you know when you're doing it, you're not just doing it, but as you do it, God is showing up, that he embodies whatever you're doing. And so the way that the, the priests would get the legitimacy is they were anointed and they weren't anointed, you know, maybe the way you, you might have been um, baptized if you grew up Presbyterian, just a little sprinkling, like just a little, let's keep it neat, you know. Um, and you just go like that and it's done. They poured it on you until you just stood there and you felt the oil get all up in your hair and then down your face and in your beard and soaking the front of your shirt. 
And the reason they did that was to say, this oil represents the acceptance, the empowerment, the blessing of God, so that when you do things that any other human can mimic, when you do them, God will show up in it. So that it's possible to do the exact same things a priest does and experience none of the empowerment and presence of God in it because you're going through motions. If that's what we see ministry as, if that's what we see the church as, is let's watch what other churches do and just do the stuff they do. They eat, so let's eat. Some boring guy talking, let's get a boring guy to talk for us. They have picnics, they have retreats. And if we just go through the motions, we will fail to see the difference between ministry and religion. Religion is easy to reproduce. There are rules, there are processes, ceremonies. Just do those things and you've got religion. But there's no power, no presence, no anointing in those things. Those are just acts that anybody can do. But when the priests of God, anointed and duly legitimized, did their ministry, when they said to a person in the temple, by the sacrifice, you are forgiven of your sins. What right does one man have to tell another man that he's forgiven? What right? How could my releasing of another person have any binding effect in their life? If I say, hey, I forgive you, those are just words. But when a priest said them in the temple, God showed up in those words, and he not only legitimized the words themselves, but something happened in the person's heart so that they would legitimately feel free to the weight of their guilt. In other words, as the man did his thing, God did his thing through that man, and something powerful took place. This is why I think this verse is so important, because what it says is when God sees a people united, he pours out his anointing on that group of people, so that they will not be bound to just go through the motions of religion, building an organization, but when they go through those motions, he will be there imbued in those motions. The difference between a united church and a disunited church is that in the united church, what people do, God does. Everyone can have a person speak, but in a united church, something profound happens among the congregation as the man of God brings the word. Something happens because God delights to anoint those people who are united. In a fractured church, you can have the most professional communicator, the most incredible creative arts team, the perfect band, five-time Dove Award-winning artists standing on the stage. And in the end, you will walk away feeling like, that was pretty good, but nothing happened in here. I was waiting for something, and it was like everyone showed up but God. Now, I'm not trying to poop on any church exact polish and all that. I, I would like to move towards more and more spit and polish, of course. But what I am saying is, in the church that is united, there's this further anointing, there's this blessing of knowing that we're not just going through the motions, but the things we do, God is showing up in it. Does that matter to you? Does it matter to you that God blesses, he anoints the church that delights his heart through unity? Because it's a lot more fun to go to a church like that than to one that's just going through the stiff motions and mimicking what church should look like. It's the difference between eating a meal cooked by me, looking at a cookbook, uh, quarter cup, and cooked by somebody who knows what they're doing. They're like, I don't, I don't do cookbooks. And a dash of this, and oh, it needs this. And you know, when you eat that dish, the chef's dish is going to taste a lot better than my buy the recipe, buy the cookbook dish. That's why I'm saying to you, you can read all the books you want on how to build a church, but when God's people unite around his son and he anoints them, he delights in their unity, you'll feel it. That's church. Something's happening. And there's no way to manufacture that. Amen? Let me just give you one last quick benefit. Good Lord, it's 1116. Should, should I slow it down? Or I like us to have some time to respond. So let me give you one more benefit. See, our unity invites God's delight. It also invites his anointing. But let me give you one last thing that happens. Um, When we are a united church and God's heart is delighting in watching his children love one another and live together in harmony, 
It invites God's refreshment. In verse 3, if you could flash that up there, it says, thank you. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I wish that in the um, NIV they had included the word mount, otherwise you feel like some guy named Hermon is sweating all over this mountain. Um, it's a joke. Wake up. Thank you. <clears throat> mount Hermon was a very high mountain. It's at 10,000 feet above sea level. I would have been okay on Mount Hermon. Okay? 2,000 feet above Mount Hermon, I'd be in trouble. Mount Hermon was at 10,000 feet, and it was at an altitude where there was also a lot of precipitation. So throughout the year, there was snow, there was rain, there was melt and runoff, and every morning on Mount Hermon, at its peak especially, was thick dew all over everything. So the Mount Hermon, year-round, was famous for its lush, green vegetation. When you looked at the mountain, it wasn't this stark, cold, rocky, gray mountain with white snow. It was green all over. And that's a hard thing to see in the desert, isn't it? Because that's a pretty arid area, if you've, if you've ever seen it, uh, in photos or in, in real life. I mean, it's hard to, to picture in the desert a big chunk of green. But that's what Mount Hermon was. So that it came to symbolize abundance, lushness, life that is not spare and spartan, but life that is just flowing over with goodness and, and vitality. Do you know that feeling of like seeing somebody who's a picture of health and you just, just looking at them being around and you're like, I, I got to get healthier. Because everything, they just walk around, even the way they walk, the way they sit just looks healthy. You're like, how can you just be sitting there and looking so healthy? I just feel so out of sorts when I'm around you because when I look at you, the hair is thick and lustrous and your muscle tone is good and your smile is always so genuine. And you're like, I just want to be like that. And that's what Mount Hermon represented. When you thought about Hermon, you thought about God showing up and touching a place, and it just starts to sprout. It's like springtime all year long on Mount Hermon. Contrast that to another mountain called Mount Zion, which is not really a mountain at all. It's a little hill just outside of Jerusalem, the old city. And around May to October, the summer months when many of the festivals and and the pilgrimages would have taken place, Jerusalem and Mount Zion were dry as a bone. Just dry everywhere. And you're just thirsty just looking at this chunk of it. It looked like all the hills in California. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm in California at the wrong time of year, but it's all brown everywhere. You're like, a lot of hills, but they're brown hills. They look like dirt hills to me. And that's what I picture Mount Zion looking like. It's just this big mound of brown dirt. Could have been construction, you know, landfill, but you just call it a mountain, there you are. and, And so what he's saying is, that's what you see as you're approaching Jerusalem. You see Mount Zion. It's a very special, spiritually significant mountain, but man, look at it. It looks like refuse soil. It looks like the stuff you dig out of your garden, just pile up. And what he says is, as we're approaching Jerusalem and we feel the unity, it's as if the rich dew of Mount Hermon is being poured out on the dryness of Mount Zion. What he's saying is, even if what you see right in front of you is dry as a bone, the unity of God's people, the goodness and the pleasantness of that, can feel like somebody squeezing cold water onto your tongue after you've been nearly dying of thirst in the desert. What it's saying is, we sometimes think what we've got to do for a person is change the situation. They're going through a rough spot in life. And what do most of us do when we watch our beloved friend suffering, going through a hard time? Instinctively, we draw away, don't we? Because it makes us uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. And when the, the situation is bad enough, terminal illness or you know, serious breakdown of a relationship, joblessness, and you're like, that's pretty heavy stuff. I can't control the economy. I can't control your relationships. I can't touch you and make you well. And when the weight of what they're going through is so heavy, we we get repelled by it because I can't change your circumstances. And there's the folly, the mistake in our thinking is believing that what a person going through hard times needs most is a change of their circumstances. Yes, it will be most welcome if this trial I'm going through would change, 
But what really crushes the heart of those who are struggling is that they're doing it alone. That at the time they need others most, everyone is freaked out and drawing away because I would help you, but I can't do anything for your problem. Yes, you can. You can't make Mount Zion lush. But when you live together in unity, it could feel like the dew of Mount Hermon being squeezed out upon that dry hill. And that's what the people who are struggling need most, is not your advice, not your attempts to fix their situation, but what they need is you. They desperately need you to just be with them so that they don't feel so completely isolated in what they have to go through. They know it's hard. They know that what they're going through, no one would envy, and nothing. they've tried everything. If they could fix it, they would have already. But they're at the end of their rope in the power to change the situation. But it's amazing what happens when you enter their life and you just stand next to them. I think children are really good at this. Children don't always talk to you because they don't know what the heck they're doing. They can't fix anything. They see you sad. They don't go, hey, buddy, um, what's wrong? How can we fix it? They just walk up to you and they sit on your lap and then they, they just let you hold them. And as you're holding a kid when you're really sad, <laughs> it doesn't even have to be your kid. Borrow anybody's kid. Just hold a kid when you're feeling bad. It's as if the innocence, the hope, the simplicity of just another person soaks into your soul through contact. Something profound happens when you stop feeling alone in the midst of terrible trial. I'm saying this to encourage you. Listen, I know that when someone close to you goes through a really bad spell, the first instinct, especially for Americans, is to fix it. And I say, I don't know how to fix that, so I'm just going to... Man, sorry. And it's at that moment that what they want most is just somebody to walk towards them and say, hey, it sucks to be in your situation, but you're not by yourself. If there were anything I could do, I would do it. But I'm doing what I know I can do. I can be with you. I can be your brother when the sky is falling. I can be your sister. The ground fell out from under you. Are you feeling that? Because some of you know what that feels like and how it is like the dew of a lush mountain falling. Just somebody, you're sitting in a new person at a, at a church and you're feeling like totally out of it. And then somebody walks across the room looking right at you and you're like, oh, are they looking at me? Are they coming to And they walk right up to you and with a smile, they say, hey, welcome. What's your story? Who are you? You want to come to lunch? And right there, the dry hill of Mount Zion becomes muddy with the dew of Mount Hermon. That's what our unity does in the hands of God. Some of the greatest gifts God gives us, he gives us through one another. And I hope that if you're struggling and you're going through a hard time and your life feels like Mount Zion, that you would not give your heart over to the enemy who wants to discourage you and squash you in a spiral of bitterness, but you will tell somebody. There are people who love you. They just don't know how to love you right now. And you were in the same shoes when others suffered around you before. I think suffering makes an expert out of all of us. We know exactly what we need because we're finally going through it. But let me encourage you. If you're going through that, there are people who love you deeply. They just don't know how. Tell them how. Tell them, I don't want you to fix me. I'm not asking you to be freaked out because I'm telling you, fix me. I'm just telling you, can you be with me? That's what I really need. I love you as a brother or a sister. Reach out because there are people who love you more than it feels like they love you. They're just freaked out by your situation and they don't know how to help. Teach them. Teach them. And if you've got somebody around you whose life really can be described as a dry hill of dirt, don't let them sit there invisible, avoided, repelled. Go to them. And you don't have to fix them. You just got to be the brother or their sister. And when you do it, you'd be amazed at the effect your presence and your faithfulness has on another person. For them, it would just be like water on parched earth. And it would make all the difference in the world. And for them, it will feel like God loving them through you. And I hope that that would just create a compelling picture 
of how good it can be to be the church united. How miracles can happen here in a person's heart just through one another. And that's what many of us were drawn here looking for, longing for, and we're still waiting to find it, some of us. I'm confident that as God moves through our church, you will find it. Hang on. Wait for the end of the story. Don't quit. We're working to become God's family. You've got to give one another a chance, and you've got to rouse your sleeping heart and say, let's not just go through the motions. Let's do something here. Let's actually be here with and for one another. Doesn't that sound like something you want to be a part of? Thank you. Anybody else awake? Doesn't that just sound like something you'd rather be a part of? Right? And I know that even if we're not perfectly there, God's bringing us there. That's what we see. That's where we're making a pilgrimage for. Nobody at this church has a goal of becoming an isolated, fractured church. Our hearts cry is that he would knit us together into a family. And day by day, I'm confident God is working here. And little by little, we're going to get right what we've gotten wrong. And I think it's going to delight God's heart. And I think it's going to delight your heart. So I want to give you some time to respond because I actually have time and I'm going to get yelled at by my wife if I dismiss too early. So instead of listening to me talk, why don't we just listen to God and listen to our own hearts for a while and let's respond to what you've heard. And the, the first challenge I want to give you, invitation I want to give you as we pray is this. Could it be that somehow lately you've been very aware of the tribal lines at this church Maybe you've been feeling very like separate, other than everyone else because somehow you've changed tribes or you feel that you're from something very different than everyone else and that's become an insurmountable obstacle for you. And I think we need to just give that up to God and say, look, there is a lot that could divide us, but if God will show up in my life, he can do something great here. I don't have to see only married versus single, old versus young, Asian versus non-Asian. Those are all labels and categories that are valid, but they are not going to bring this church together if you obsess over those things. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, our Jerusalem, our center, our rally point. Say, God, I think that because of you, there's more that could unite us than divide us. And give that up. Maybe, maybe you're feeling a burden about that. Just give that up to God during this time. Pray through it. Maybe um, some of you are struggling with ministry that feels very dead and dry right now. Maybe you're a community group leader or a member and you show up each week and you're waiting for something powerful, something like you remembered once happening and it's just not happening and you're starting to wonder, what are we doing every week? We're just walking like zombies through the motions, mimicking human life, but nothing's happening. And if that's where you are, We need to just give that to the Lord and say, God, would you unite us so that like oil anointing Aaron's head, you would show up in the things we're doing. We're trying to be faithful. We're going through the motions. But how powerful if you would show up in those motions. If when we did something, you also did something, God. And if you're feeling that way about your community group or your ministry team, if you've been coming up, waking up at 6 and hooking up a trailer to a truck, and you're feeling like, I'm done, man. I can't do this anymore. If that's where your heart is, ask God to do something about it. Don't just die to it. Fight. Ask him to unite the church, to encourage your heart, so that out of that apathy and that deadness, something like oil dripping down the beard settle over you. And I'm going to give you one last challenge. Maybe what you're feeling is it's hard to even hear a series on community because you feel so abandoned and alone right now. Maybe someone sitting right next to you is going through that and you're a friend who doesn't know what to do about that. You love them. You just don't know how. Would you pray, give that to God and if you're the one who is feeling isolated, say, God, I know that it's only the enemy lying to me that I have nobody who cares but they just don't know how. Would you teach my brothers and sisters how to love me right now? Would you draw your church to me? Don't just get angry. Get prayerful. Ask God, because he already has people around you that love you. He can wake them up and teach them how. So pray for that. Humble your heart. Soften. 
and ask. And if you don't know how to love, receive God's invitation to you. Stop fixing, stop giving advice. Just be next to your brother or your sister who's hurting. Hang on to their hand, pray with them. Take them out for a meal. Just listen. You'd be like dew falling on a dry hill. So I'm going to stop talking now and leave it to you to stand before God and just in your own way, process and respond, okay? And then I'm going to come back for us in a few minutes and pray together. good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. How it delights your heart, O God, when we take care of one another. And like your children, we love one another just the way you would love us. And God, we acknowledge this morning that we are not perfect at doing this, not by any stretch. Some of us don't know really how to love those among us who most need it. But use your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us, change us into those who can love. Against all odds, in spite of everything here that could divide us, we pray that you, Lord Jesus, would rally us together and unite us in this unity that is good and pleasant, delightful, to us as it is to you. God, some are right now stuck in a really bad place in their journey with you where everything feels hollow and empty. They go through the motions and they're not finding you. They're not finding life in it. I pray, God, that you would come and move within our church. Fight for us so that you would banish empty, meaningless motions 
and you would begin to fill and embody, inhabit the things we do. We want to be faithful. We will continue doing what you told us to do. But God, we desperately need you to anoint what we do. Show up in it. Be, be present and a blessing to us. So that as we continue to kneel in prayer, open the pages of scripture, go to our gatherings. Little by little, we would experience that you are redeeming those things. And we're finding you in it. And our hearts are delighting. And God, for those whose hearts and their lives feel dry as the desert right now, guard their hearts in Christ Jesus so that the enemy will not cast them down into bitterness, but that you would raise them up to be desperate for you and for the church. And as you soften their hearts, God, I pray that you would raise up all around them those who already love them and are now learning how. Teach us to stop just fixing each other and to begin just living with one another in unity. We know that you want to repair. You want to heal. But God, we pray first that you would help us just to do it together. Impress on our hearts how much this means to you. How you look for this as one of the first things when you look at our church. We pray over the years, even in the very next days, a transformation would happen here. And those who are feeling very on the outside would suddenly feel once again on the inside of something. We pray that you will be glorified and your heart will delight in this church as you see us being knit together. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.